Good morning. Uh, my name is Justin Owens. I'm one of the elders here at Three Rivers Church. And we're so glad to have you here with us this morning, whether you're physically present in this room or you're watching by live stream or you're watching our recording later. We're glad to have you joining us this morning. So we're going to be looking all over the New Testament this morning as we continue our series and talking about the church. Uh, we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you want to take a moment and turn there while I give a few introductory comments, we'll be starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So this morning we're talking about metaphors of the church. So I hope you're ready to be here for a couple of hours because uh, we could talk for days. I'm just kidding. But each of the three metaphors we're going to look at could be a sermon on its own. So this is going to be a really high level uh, overview of how the Bible presents the church by using these three different metaphors. Uh, so I encourage you when you meet with your radical life groups, when you talk in your families, um, hopefully the notes will be eventually posted on Mitch's blog, MitchJolly.com, so you can review those. Um, but talk about this more, dig into this deeper. Um, we're all believers filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, trust the Lord to lead you as you look through that. Uh, so as we begin, uh, I want to remind us of a couple things that we've looked at in the past weeks. Uh, number one, the local church is the context for the entire New Testament. Uh, that's very important for us as we look at the church. The, the church is the context of the New Testament. Paul wrote his letters to the church, different churches. And number two, the church has a mission. The mission of the church is to disciple the nations for the glory of God. The church is the community of the kingdom of God. It's made up of all believers of all time. It manifests itself in local expressions of disciples who follow Jesus in covenant community together. We emphasize here at Three Rivers that the order of our DNA matters. K-D-S-C. K-D-S-C. Kingdom, disciple, society, church. The preached message of the kingdom produces disciples who hear and obey and then engage their domain of society to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to heal what's broken. And as these disciples gather together, they form the church. If you start with the kingdom, you'll get the church. If you start with the church, you might miss the kingdom. So the church is the community of the kingdom. It's not the kingdom itself. The church is the first fruits of this new creation that's brought about by the kingdom having come. It's the redeemed people of God on mission together for God's glory. Jesus proclaimed, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 4. N.T. Wright says that the end has come in the middle, or as Leslie Newbigin says, the church is God's agent for bringing about the first fruits of renewed created order. It's the new society of redeemed creation. So how does the Bible teach us about the church? What does it have to say to us? One of the things we see when we study scripture is the use of metaphors to describe different aspects of the church. Uh, using metaphors is like looking at a diamond, looking at different facets of a diamond. It's one diamond, but if we look at it at different angles, under different lights, different sides, uh, etc., it allows us to see the diamond more fully for what it is and what it has. Each metaphor of the church helps us get a more full understanding of what the church is and is supposed to be. If we focus exclusively on one of the metaphors, we miss the point and we miss out on what the rest of the metaphors have to teach us about being the church. 
So let's start at looking at these different metaphors. The first one is the temple of God. The temple of God. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make you my I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them, and I will be my God, be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So the temple of God, you can also read some in 1 Peter chapter 2 or Ephesians chapter 2 that reference us being the temple of God. It's important to note here that uh, like in Ephesians, when it says you're being built together into a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. For those of us in the south, it would appropriately read y'all are being built together into the temple of God. It's plural. It's not singular. So that that's important for us to note. You are being built together or you are the temple. It's a plural you. It's a y'all. We need a good y'all version of the Bible. It's not a passage about how individually you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but how we collectively are the temple. We collectively are God's dwelling place. Now, individually, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, but individually, we are not the church. We are members of the church. We are part of the church, but collectively, we're the community of the kingdom that makes up the church. So what can we learn from being described as the temple of God? We learn that God is present with us. He dwells in our midst. And he's pleased with the sacrifices of praise and good deeds that we offer to him. So we learn that God's present with us. In the Old Testament, the temple or the tabernacle represented God's dwelling place amongst his chosen people. It symbolized God's very presence in their midst. We, as the new temple, are God's dwelling place here on earth. Among his people. And as such we're a light to the world around us. That there is a God. And that what God says is true. I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 2. A couple of verses for you. You yourselves are like living stones. Being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God. Through Jesus Christ. And jump over to verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So something else we learn is that the temple is made up of priests. We all, as believers, function as priests. Now, the priests of old, they would proclaim the word of the Lord to the people. They would offer sacrifices From the people back to God. In Jesus we're all made priests. To proclaim the praises of him who has called us out of darkness. Into marvelous light. We offer a sacrifice of praise to him. You don't need a priest to communicate with God. You don't need anyone else to communicate God's word to you. In a sense. Because you're all filled with the Holy Spirit. You have the word. And we're all priests unto the Lord. We also see in the book of Ezekiel, the Lord tell the priests that they're to intercede for the lost. 
So we have a duty as priests to the Lord to be concerned with those who are outside of the kingdom and who need to hear this message of good news. So that's the first metaphor. The first metaphor being the temple of the Lord. The next metaphor we see is being the family of God. Now the idea of the church being the family of God comes from a variety of passages across the whole New Testament. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of those passages for you, but I'll give you a quick summary of a few of them. But I would encourage you later to uh, read these passages, read them in your small groups, and take a look at them. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the church is called the household of God. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul gives instructions for us to treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and younger men as brothers. At the end of Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says that those who do the will of his father... Are his true family. And in 1 John chapter 3, John says that we are the children of God. So these are just a few of the passages that point us towards viewing ourselves as members of the family of God. And in the family of God, we're not only redeemed and saved from our sins, but we're adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters. Emmett's used this illustration many times uh, of a courtroom and God being the judge who declares those who repent and believe in Jesus to be not guilty. And that's what we looked at when we took communion. But then he takes off the judge's robe and he welcomes us into his living room. That's the full picture of what it means to be redeemed and saved and welcomed into the family of God. We're declared not guilty and then we're welcomed in as part of the family. In the family of God, we practice what we call the one another commands of the New Testament. There's 59 of them. 59 one another commands throughout the New Testament. So you could say in God's family, we're commanded to live a one another lifestyle. If you look at 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10, we're told to love one another earnestly, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling, to bear one another's burdens. We support one another. We care for one another. We lift one another up. We rejoice with one another. We mourn with one another. We minister to one another, showing the manifold grace of God to each other and to the world in the way that we do life together. Each believer is equipped and gifted in some way by the Holy Spirit. And we each have different spiritual gifts for the good of the other. We're not given those gifts for the benefit of ourselves. We're given those gifts for the benefit of others that are around us. So I use the word other a lot, right? The emphasis of being part of the family of God is others, others. It's the second greatest command, according to Jesus, to love your neighbor as yourself. Being concerned with the other. For us at Three Rivers, how do we practically live that out? It's practically lived out through our radical life groups. It's hard to bear one another's burdens to bear with one another, to love one another, to care for and support and encourage one another if we don't live life together in some way, shape, form, or fashion. There's a practical nature of church life that can't be accomplished on Sunday morning in one hour in this room. Especially now that you're not even in rows sitting beside a bunch of people, but you're in pods of families and even smaller groups. It's impractical to really carry out the one another commands, to bear with one another, and to love one another if all we do is gather together for an hour 
on Sunday morning. So for us, practically, that means meeting in small groups. We call them radical life groups. The radical life is what we call the life of a follower of Jesus. Up in and out. Worship of God, community with one another, and ministry to the world outside the church. Don't hear me minimize the importance of a gathering like this. It's important that we gather. But this isn't all that there is to church life together. As many of you are now gathered but scattered, meeting together in groups, watching this either via recording or live stream, you're no less part of this church. You're no less part of the church. You participate as part of this church just as if you were here gathered with us today in person. So it's vital to remain connected to the body by being present when we can in a gathering like this. But it's even more vital to be gathered together in some smaller group where you really can live life together. Where you know what's going on in each other's lives. Where you really know how to minister to one another and care for one another. To sharpen one another and to build one another up in the image of Christ. To live on covenant community together on mission. So for us, that's that happens in a radical life group. But we're all part of the family of God. We need to view ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think for a large part in the greater uh, context of our culture and society, that would do a lot of good if as believers we really viewed ourselves as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So the last metaphor we're going to look at is that of being the body of Christ. So if you have your Bible, I do want to read a couple of longer passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then Ephesians chapter 4. I'll give you a second to turn there. 1 Corinthians 12. And I'll start in verse 12. And then Ephesians chapter 4. And this last metaphor is that of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, picking up in verse 12, reading through the end of the chapter. But just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, then prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. We see a whole lot there about being the body of Christ. And I want to pick up on that again in Ephesians chapter 4, just to show that this is not just an isolated one passage deal. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's see. I'm going to pick up in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'm going to skip down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And toward the end it talks about the whole body being joined together and unified so that the body can build itself up. So we see this image of a body very clearly. We see even more in Ephesians chapter 2 um, the emphasis on being unified as a body. As the body of Christ, we're dependent on one another. There's that word again, one another. right? We're dependent on one another. We are not to live independent lives celebrating our individual salvation, but rather we are to live dependent on one another as parts of the body We depend on one another for the good of the whole. And we appreciate the diversity of gifts within the body because we can accomplish more together than we could accomplish alone. When one of us is hurt, we all hurt. When your toe hurts, you hurt. When your arm hurts, you hurt. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 12, you see many different kinds of gifts within the body, just as a body has many parts. And all of them are useful And all of them have a purpose. And the body isn't complete without each part. Every follower of Jesus is gifted in some way. We see this again in Ephesians chapter 4. The giftings are given to the body so that it can build itself up. We're gifted for the benefit of one another. We're not gifted for the benefit of ourselves. So two truths here that are really important for us to grasp. Number one, there's no such thing as an ungifted Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are gifted in some way by Jesus for the benefit of his church. So there's no such thing as an ungifted Christian. And the gifts we have are meant to be used within the community of believers to build one another up. So I need what you have. And you need what I have. We are incomplete without one another. There's much more I'd love to dive into in these passages, um, but for the sake of time, that'll have to wait for another day. But just as one body hurts and the whole body, one part of the body hurts and the whole body is affected, 
We're told to rejoice with one another when one of us rejoices and to mourn with one another when someone mourns. We're commanded to bear one another's burdens. When we talk about the life of a disciple at Three Rivers, we summarize it by saying up, in, and out. Up is our relationship with God. In is our relationship with one another inside the church. And out, our relationship with and ministry to the world outside the church. So there's an in and an out component to being the body of Christ. In is where we care for one another. We use our gifts to build one another up. But out as the body, we are the presence of Jesus in the world. We are the hands and feet of Christ in the world around us. And we talk about engaging our society, engaging our domain of society. We, we engage our cities, our counties, our communities as God's ambassadors who bring the message of good news and healing and reconciliation. As disciples of Jesus, we don't run from society. We stand and we prophetically speak the truth. We live in the world but not of the world. We proclaim the word of the Lord to a lost and dying world that needs to hear some good news. We're to be agents of healing, restoration, and reconciliation. Reconciling the world back to God and to one another. And our life together is supposed to be characterized by an uncommon unity. A unity that can't be found outside the church. We're unified in Christ because we're one. And that's what we see in this image of being the body, right? We're one no matter what part we play. No matter what differences we have... We are one. So what can we take away from looking at the metaphors of the church? Number one, the church is more than a Sunday morning gathering. It's more than a place to just attend and come and then go. It's a place to belong. It's a place to engage. And we're living that out right now during this COVID pandemic that we find ourselves in. We've been saying for months, strange that it's been going on for months, right? We've been saying for months now, though, that we're the church that is gathered, scattered. Tony Evans would say it this way. He says the church is more than a corporate gathering on Sunday because when that corporate gathering is over, the church still marches on. We don't cease to be a church when we leave this room on Sunday mornings. Just because we can't all be present right here right now doesn't make us any less of a church living in covenant community together. So number one, we need to know that the church is more than just a Sunday morning gathering. The Sunday morning gathering is important. It matters, but it's much more than just this moment. Number two, our unity puts on display God's glory. Our unity puts on display God's glory. And it's displayed through our carrying out of the one another commands of the New Testament. We are one in Christ. So what does that look like right now for this moment in America? Being unified for the glory of God. Not only are we in the midst of a pandemic, we're experiencing a type of awakening to the plight of injustice, racial injustice that's been going on around us for centuries. It's not like this just happened out of nowhere, but it seems that collectively we're paying attention to the problem. But there are many voices of competing narratives that want to downplay the truth 
or get us to turn our eyes away from the problems that we see in our society because it makes us uncomfortable. But here's the thing. This plight of our brother and sisters in Christ, this moment that we find ourselves in, it's not new. And we need to hear, we need to see, we need to be able to speak truth. We have to be able to discern what is right and wrong and true and bear with one another during these difficult times where everybody's got a different opinion about what we should do. But we need to listen. And remember, we live in a time where there are many voices that downplay the problems. There are voices that deny that systemic racism is real. There are pundits on every news channel of all skin tones and cultural backgrounds that are paid a whole lot of money to convince us that there's not really a problem. You might be asking, what does this have to do with metaphors of the church? Well, here's the point. Our brothers and sisters in the family of God who have different skin tones and cultures than us, I'm speaking to a predominantly white group of people, they've suffered the effects of systemic injustice and racism, and they've been hurt by our silence. Because we don't want to offend anyone, or we don't want to make anyone uncomfortable, or we don't want to be uncomfortable ourselves. But as a family, we are one. Paul teaches us to put aside our personal preferences for the good of the other. It means that we're keenly aware of our context and our culture. Not just the one that we might find ourselves in the midst of at a given moment, but being aware of the cultural lens through which we interpret the events of our life. We put our brothers and sisters first. You can see Romans 14 for a deeper dive in some of that. James teaches us about a poor man that comes into a gathering of the church. And he's mistreated by being told to sit somewhere else to save room for a more prominent person. And James calls out this hypocrisy in the church. Because the church is the family of God that's supposed to be unified. And tears down all these barriers that separate us. And as a family, we care for one another above our own comforts and our own desires. So to truly live as the church... As the family of God, of redeemed followers of Jesus, we got to figure out a way to put aside our discomfort, to recognize our ingrained biases, to put aside our own personal preferences, and to be concerned with one another. And that's what it means to be the family of God. If you want to read a few passages, just since this is the moment of our, of our day, of our time that we live in, about biblical justice... You can read Isaiah 58, Micah 6. You can read the whole book of Amos. And those are just a few of the passages that I could point you to. But attempts at unity that ignore the problems are not really unity. It's a false sense of peace that comes from ignoring our problems. But the problem has to be dealt with. Problems don't just go away. They can't be ignored forever. Tony Evans also said in speaking about our unity as believers that unity is uniqueness working together for a common goal. So we're to be unified in Christ, one body made into a new people, a new race made of a people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. And that unity defies all worldly explanation, and it brings great glory to God. It displays the power of the kingdom to remake all that's broken because of our sin. It's not easy, but it's possible in Christ. We're one in him. So what can we take away? The church is more than a Sunday morning gathering. 
Our unity puts on display God's glory. And finally, we, we worship, right? We worship the one who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. He's the one that's reconciling the world back to himself. He's the one that made us a kingdom of priests. And he's given us a mission to make his name known among all nations. He alone is worthy and he alone deserves our praise. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and make their way up here. And then I invite you to join with us and to worship the Lord who is building his church of which we're a part. Lord, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness. You've called us into marvelous light and you've made us new creations. And you've brought us together as a family and you've given us a mission to tell those who are still in darkness this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, that they might also be called out of darkness and into marvelous light. Lord, I pray for your people uh, today all around the world, for Three Rivers Church, that we would be unified, that we would be your people for your glory above all. And Lord, it's something only you can accomplish. We live in a very strange time where many people are hurting and confused. And it's hard to discern what the truth is. But I pray you'd help us to bear with one another, to love one another well, and to live life together on mission for your glory. And now as we worship you, we pray that it would be pleasing to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.